greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. This passage has incredible meaning for the POW rescue efforts throughout the Vietnam War. Previously on the Modern Military History Podcast, we looked at Bright Light as a concept. We looked uh, at Bright Light, the book. If you haven't watched that podcast, I would highly recommend going back and acquainting yourself with the story of the massive Herculean efforts that went in to recovering POWs during the Vietnam War and the heartbreaking near misses. But be the Vietnam, be, be Vietnam's legacy what it is, there's an incredible amount of contention, especially around the POW MIA issue. And I contend then, and I continue to contend strongly that POW rescue efforts during the Vietnam War remain a shining bright light in our national history. Today, we have the absolute privilege, the absolute honor of having not one but two guests on the Modern Military History Podcast who have deep ties to perhaps one of the most famous, if not the most famous, POW rescue effort of the Vietnam War. We have Terry Buckler, and we have Cliff Westbrook today. Terry was a Sante Raider, a Green Beret, a warrior. Cliff is the son of an airman who participated in the raid and himself a uh, Air Force veteran and a pilot. These two men continue to spread the word and the story of this incredible raid today, um, you know, many years afterwards. It is, it is just an honor and a privilege of the Modern Military History Podcast to have them here today. Gentlemen, welcome, and thank you for coming. Thank you, Andy. It's an honor to be here with you. We look forward to spreading the word about the Sante Raid. Copy that. Copy that. Before we get into the, the raid itself, I want to introduce both of you to, to the audience. And um, Cliff, uh, I would love to, I'd love to start with you, sir. Um, where, let's, just, let's just start from the beginning. Where were you born, sir? Yeah, I was, uh, I was an Air Force brat. Um, at the time of the Sante raid, I was four years old, and, and my father was the aircraft commander of Lime 02 on the Sante raid. Um, we moved around a lot, as Air Force families do, and uh, for me, it was a great experience. Uh, we lived in the Philippines and England, uh, Washington, D.C., and a good amount of time in Charleston, <clears throat> 
And uh, I went to the Air Force Academy and graduated in 88 and went to pilot training, flew the B-1 bomber. And my father has, you know, told a lot of uh, stories of the Sante raid. And um, when Terry uh, was was gathering these stories for the the book that he and I wrote, and uh, especially with a focus for the 50th anniversary, it was just an honor and a privilege to get to talk with so many of the Raiders. And and Terry is just a great story. Um, so he's sort of the the main. Uh, storyline of the book, but it has 40 other other Raiders and participants giving their stories. So it all sort of knits into a, a, a fabric that really gives the context of the Sante Raid and the heart of the Raiders. Mm-hmm. And uh, when did your, do you, are you able to speak much to, you know, when your dad joined uh, the military and what his journey was leading up to the the fateful events where he was uh, piloting one of the Lime aircraft. Yeah, he grew up in a tiny town in the in rural Alabama, and he himself went to the Air Force Academy. He graduated in the third class, which is the class of 1961, and uh, so many of those flew in Vietnam. Dad flew rescue, so it was HC 130s. And those C-130s are specialized in the communications of coordinating rescues and getting on the scene quick, getting the communication with any downed uh, pilots, especially uh, over sea or over the jungles. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had the specialized equipment to even do uh, the technology of, a, of the Fulton recovery system, mm-hmm. which, which uh, you know, you fly along, a, a, a person needing rescue would launch a balloon with a line and then the the aircraft snags that line and literally just draws them straight up into the sky. Reminds me of James Bond. It really is. (laughs) (laughs) And so all those, those specialties uh, kind of came together just at the right time and made the Sante raid possible. Uh, Not so much that this, the Fulton recovery system was used, but it was one of the capabilities. Copy that. The real crucial capability, um, and dad trained at Eglin Air Force Base and Hurlbert Air Force Base in Florida, it was rescue helicopter refueling. So all of a sudden, helicopters that would do these, uh, you know, pick up downed airmen or anybody needing rescue, those helicopters now had unlimited range. And that also sparked the mind of the innovative thinkers who conceived the Sante raid. They said, we can literally land a helicopter anywhere in North Vietnam. And, and that, that's what they did. Copy that. And uh, Terry, sir, pivoting to you, sir, where were you born? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in uh, rural Missouri. I grew up on a farm, was actually born on a farm and uh, spent my first 18 years on the farm until uh, graduating from high school. And uh, from that time, I uh, uh, went to uh, trade school for about six months till I ran out of money and came back home. And uh, at that point, the draft was still enacted and uh, I uh, volunteered for the draft and uh, uh once I was signed in and sworn in to the Army, uh, a few days later, I 
volunteered for the Green Beret mm-hmm. and, uh, and then continued volunteering till the Sante Raid. Mm-hmm. But uh, grew up on a, in a rural area, uh, you know, nice uh, family, good family. And uh, kind of the claim to fame is uh, Omer Bradley was born in the same town, Clark, Missouri. And uh, he went on to be quite the general. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't make general. No. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, had, uh, had, a, had a good tour while in the army. The warrior so. roots run deep in Missouri. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> um, when you're growing up on a farm, did you ever play army? Did you ever oh, have yeah. dreams? Yeah. Uh-huh. What we did played- that look like? <laughs> well, we had uh, cowboys and Indians, of oh, course, yeah. and then uh, went on in to play different roles and, mm-hmm. you know, hiding as an army guy mm-hmm. and uh, both good and bad. So it was, uh, you know, uh, back in those days, uh, we didn't have a TV, so you made up your own games and oh, yeah. your own rules. So mm-hmm. worked worked out uh, nicely. So never, ever expected to be involved in the military to the extent that the, the Sante raid by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, glad I did, though. Yeah. So. I, uh, you know, I ask about playing Army um, just maybe out of personal curiosity. But, you know, when I was a little kid, um, my dad made me a. Like us, he made it out of wood. He he carved away at it and made me a Thompson submachine gun replica. <laughs> and we painted it up and stained the stock and the foregrip. <laughs> so I was running around, you know, with the Thompson in the front yard one day. And, you know, it didn't have a orange muzzle cap or anything on it. You know, so, you know, um, and one day a police cruiser kind of slides up and I'm like, oh, oh, <laughs> so I'm trying to hide this thing behind my back. I'm a little kid, you know, I'm like, oh, no. Mm-hmm window rolls down and the cop looks at me and he says getting all the bad guys i said yes sir and he says carry on lit away so i guess he his meat was covered so i always want to know about playing army because that's where the fun is what made you become a green beret what was it about uh the coveted green beret that drew you in well, uh, my philosophy was that if I was going to go to Vietnam, I wanted to go with the best. Mm-hmm. And the Green Berets, well, what I knew about them, which was very limited, but I knew they were the cream of the crop, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I always felt like uh, that would be the team that I would want to be a part of. And that uh, when I volunteered for Special Forces, gotcha. never regretted it. It's been a I had a, a interesting career. I wasn't a career person. I served three years and then four years as reservist while I was in college. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've had the opportunity to meet some terrific warriors uh, from Bull Simons, Dick Meadows, uh, uh, you know, Chakovinko, Dan Turner. Uh, it, uh, I've just been blessed and uh to have the opportunity to meet and be associated with men like that, that are true uh, icons and special forces. Um, Copy that. One one thing I want to add too, Cliff is my co-author, but I got to tell you, Cliff did a 
tremendous job of putting, getting me to finish the book. I started the book in 2012 when my daughter went to Afghanistan and uh, uh, the, through the help of Cliff, uh, he really pushed me and I'm glad he did because uh, uh, the book is a combination of my thoughts and his thoughts and, uh, and the other 40 people that were in the, the that provided their information to us as well. So I hope the readers enjoy it. Everybody that I've talked to so far that has read the book has really enjoyed uh, it's, it's the story and uh, of, through the whole process. So Copy that. thanks Cliff. Yeah. I, I loved working on it with you. It was just a, a labor of love and it was a lot of work, but man, I loved every minute. And for those who do not know, we are talking about who will go into the Sante POW camp by Terry Buckler with Cliff Restbrook. And we're, we're learning here, um, you know, every Simon needs Garfunkel, so to speak. And uh, Cliff, what was this process for you like? Um, well, let me let me let me rephrase that. Your father was hands-on a participant in the raid. At what point did the Sante raid become a significant part of your life, sir? Mm. You know, through the years, my dad, um, uh, you know, I knew Lime02 was his call sign. Um, He told some uh, sort of funny stories about it. He's got... He's a pretty good storyteller, and he tells a lot of uh, aviation, there I was kinds of stories. Seems like for every occasion, he's got something. One time, for instance, uh, he was departing out of uh, Robbins Air Force Base in Make, near Macon, Georgia, mm-hmm. and uh, they were headed across country, but just as they're coming, they're depart- as they're departing, some F-84s are coming in, and they'd had a, a collision, and so they one of them uh, was missing or uncertain. Mm. Well, they're in the rescue world. So wherever they are, even though they're flying cross country, they volunteered with uh, the Atlanta center and the air traffic control to go ahead and coordinate that rescue. It just seems Mm. like there's uh, always a story, whether it's Africa landing and, and dropping off something that the CIA uh, had covered in their, in their back of, in their cargo bay, and a, a bunch of Maasai warriors all line up and put ropes on it and pull it out the back. And then wow. he's supposed to start yeah, um, pretty much every continent except Antarctica. Wow. And, uh, and so the Sante raid, um, Lime Zero Two, just was, was sort of a constant throughout that. He was very proud of it. But I'll tell you, there's a difficulty. And it's something that, that every participant in the Sante raid experienced. After the raid, it was not certain what people were allowed to talk about, mm-hmm. what topics, how much they could share. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, um, very often it's called Operation Ivory Coast, but that was actually only one of three operations as it developed from the Pentagon conception to the training and development mm-hmm. to the actual in-country portion. And so some of those stories could sort of only be uh, hinted at. 
And literally for a couple of decades, so many of the Raiders were not certain what was allowed to be shared, even though there was the famous book in 1976 called The Raid by Ben Shimmer, Mm -hmm. where they talked a lot of talked about a lot of things. But so many of the Raiders, the Raiders were sort of sworn to secrecy and it was not at all clear what portions of it had been sort of divulged and were now public knowledge. So, so it was sort of revealed over bits and pieces over the decades. Fascinating. A couple things come up for me. Um, The first thing that comes up in in regards to kind of the nature of clandestine operations is just the, the immense difficulty in bringing it to the historical record, something that we're coming into contact with um, as as the American public, I would say, if not, you know, the world is exactly the uh, extent of operations during the Vietnam War that were covert at the time. Um, men like John Stryker Meyer signed a 20 year do not disclose non-disclosure form under penalty of incarceration. Um, so you literally can't tell this history and documents are still classified. And uh, now we're getting to the point where Veterans are getting older and fewer and far between. So it, it's this race against time in a way to record this history. So it's just such an out-of-body experience to be part of that and also part of what drives me to do it because it's just so important. And Maybe then, I'll give experience, uh, sure. another example of that today. Sure, sure, sure. Um, in researching this book, uh, I... Uh, worked with the Air Force Special Operations Command historian and uh, the Air Force Historical Research um, Agency, which is at Maxwell Air Force Base. And when I go into those archives, so many of those still are classified. And Mm. so you have to do a request to declassify. Mm. And it's really just sort of the bureaucracy. Mm. I'm not being cynical about it. I'm just saying it's just a fact that it does take someone to lay eyes on the document and make a decision that it's no longer classified. Hmm. It would be pretty easy to do, but you just have to have people, you know, manpower at the Air Force History Research Agency available to actually read through it once you request it. But but they're not just going to broad sweep, okay, everything about the Sante Raid is now declassified. They're not going to do it that way. Fascinating. I'm As somebody who um, is an aspiring military historian that process is fascinating and could be a podcast all in itself so our our virtual door is going to remain open to talk about that perhaps in the future um one other you know something that just came up is that you know um when i first want to learn about something i had known a bit about sante just in you know reading about it as a chapter of another book um on on bright light operations in vietnam um, that's, that was my extent of it, but in the run, in the workup to this podcast prepare, um, you know, I was doing, um, you know, you know, reading about it. And one of the first things I'll do, I'll admit is I went to Wikipedia just to just get a broad overview because Wikipedia is good for that. But the Wikipedia article is called operation ivory coast. And that is incorrect. So this points to something that I think people need to understand, um, in that a lot of people think, why does history need to be taught? Why does history need to be recorded when we can just go to Wikipedia? Well, when you're dealing with things that are as complex as uh, covert operations for the reasons we just talked about, you, you, Wikipedia isn't good enough. 
you know, it can get you the very beginning, but um, that's just a personal point in terms of uh, history and practicing it. But um, I appreciate you bringing that up because um, I'm not going to, you know, uh, moan and complain about Wikipedia, um, but, you know, it is uh, a, it's a wiki. So people, any can put it up. It's, it's uh, very well run and there's a lot to applaud, but um, that does mean that the historical context is not always there. And so there are some statements there that uh, don't seem like they capture what is now known. There's, you know, with five decades of, of revealing of what was the behind the behind the scenes, I think there's more than what's currently showing on, on Wikipedia. In other words, a better perspective, especially of the question of whether it was a failure or success, Mm. Um, because right when it came out, Failure was was used by the political opponents mm-hmm. to try to get some, you know, and especially yeah. in the hearings in the Senate, and then the media also, which of course was against Nixon and against the war. The word failure was just thrown out sure. so much sure. that unfortunately it still you know it sticks even in the Wikipedia. But I think we show in the book that there is a, a more mature perspective of what the highest goals of the national command authority was in approving the go for the Sante raid. We have organically found ourselves at the doorstep of um, the raid itself. So without further ado, um, Harry, when you got your green beret, what was, what was the journey for you? after you, you received the beret to getting, getting selected to participate in this, uh, in this raid? What was that like for you, sir? Well, to start with, uh, I had been assigned to 7th Group there at Fort Bragg, and uh, I was up in the Natahaley National Forest. In Special Forces, you were either deployed or training, mm-hmm. and I was training up in... Uh, not a Haley national forest and had gone back into Bragg to pick up some supplies. And a buddy of mine told me, Hey, uh, bull Simons is having a meeting down at the little white house. We called it looking for volunteers for a mission. Well, uh, when you mentioned the name bull Simons, that's like the, the, the John Wayne of special forces and uh, enough was, you knew enough to know that if bull Simons was looking for, volunteers, it was going to be a pretty uh, hairy raid or, or some type of uh, sure. uh, experience. So I went down uh, to see what was going on. And uh, when I got down there, there was a little over 500 SF guys down there. 500 and, guys showed up. Yep. Yeah. They, <laughs> they, they all wanted to yeah, be a part. Well, Bull Simons is just uh, an icon in sure. himself. And uh, so uh, Colonel Simons walked on stage and he always had a little cigar. He didn't smoke so much as he just chewed on it. Mm-hmm. And he uh, let it be known that uh, there was no TDY, uh, temporary duty money for this. Uh, he couldn't tell us what we were going to do or where we were going to do it at, but uh, we should be back by Christmas. And uh, he was looking for volunteers. And if you were interested in, uh, come back to uh, bring your 201 file with you. 
which is the kind of like your personnel file, if you will. And they would start the interview process. There was two, two command sergeant majors doing the interviewing. And uh, I interviewed uh, along with uh, the other ones. We probably, out of that 500, I would imagine about 250 to 300 of them actually came back. Mm -hmm. And then out of that, they selected 109 of us. Oh, wow. And and from that 109, they whittled it down to 56, actually going boots on the ground in uh, Sante. But uh, the interview process was uh, one that uh, that's where they started weeding you out. I had no combat experience. So when I was interviewed, they, they didn't dwell on that fact. They wanted to know, you know, hmm. questions. They asked me if I could weld. Well, growing up on a farm, our neighbor, uh, Sam Chisholm, was always uh, welding something for us that we broke or the other neighbors. <laughs> and I'd seen Sam weld enough to know that, heck, I thought I could do that. So I told him, yeah, I can weld. <laughs> and uh, then they wanted to know if I scuba dived. And I said, no, I, at that point, I didn't have my scuba qualifications. But uh, anyway, I I was uh, went back to... At that point, I went back to Natahaley National Forest, and about uh, three or four days later, Colonel Mangler called me into the 7th Group headquarters there. He was our commander at the time and uh, told me to pack my bag. I was uh, had been selected to go with Bull Simons, which, you know, uh, I was on the advance party going down to Eglin, and uh, so the, the process of getting selected that was a big thing for me uh not knowing what i was volunteering for or what we were going to do but uh just the fact that bull simons was leading it that was enough for most of us to know that hey this is going to be something interesting and you don't want to miss out on it so question for you in the book and uh to everybody listening we are just scratching the surface of the great content that this book has to offer um so if you have any uh enjoyment out of listening to this brief podcast uh, go ahead and, and get the book the link will be in the description um of the podcast itself so it'll be easy to find but back on track when uh in the book you say when uh terry when your dad was driving you to uh you know the, to essentially to the military when he was driving to drop you off right for boot camp he said don't volunteer for anything <laughs> That's How, what, he said. what was the what was the impact for your parents especially your dad with those words you know after he learned you had volunteered to be a green beret after he had learned you had volunteered to go on a quote hairy operation <laughs> what was that like for you sir well, uh, the interesting part about that, you know, dad had told me, you know, whatever you do, don't volunteer for anything. Well, uh, I volunteered for the draft to start with. Uh, after the draft, uh, you know, volunteered for special forces, which meant you also volunteered for jump school. And because you had to go to jump school before you could uh, go to special forces training. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I, I volunteered for the raid. So, uh, but at the point, I had volunteered. My parents didn't know anything about the raid because we couldn't reveal sure, anything sure. about that. So all they knew is I had volunteered for 
which cost me an extra year because as a, as a draftee, you're only two years, but to get into special forces, it cost me an extra year because of the training involved, but, uh, it was worth it to me. And, uh, uh, when I went home on leave, I told dad, you know, what I'd done. And he said, well, you know, good luck. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that was about it, you know? So, uh, uh, but I know he was proud mm-hmm. and, uh, that was, uh, a good, I was proud of the beret and I was proud of what I had done so far in the military, but, uh, yeah, uh, and sometimes we don't listen to our parents. Copy that. <laughs> yeah. Copy that. Yeah. Copy that on a hundred percent. I am, um, I'm a 26 year old guy and I can 100% one hundred percent agree to that statement. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes yeah. it's healthy. Sometimes <laughs> it's healthy. And uh, exactly, you know, um, I'm just fascinated that you know, Bull Simons' word percolates through the community. Hey, Bull Simons is doing something. Bull Simons yep. is going to be doing something. And then everybody shows up, and then only 109 guys are selected. Quite an extensive selection process. Cliff, um, back to you, sir. On the aviation portion, because, you know, what's wonderful about having you both here today is, you know, as I studied the raid, as I learned more about it, you know, it's it's I saw two sides of the coin. There's the ground element of the green berets who hit the dirt and went in boots on the ground. But there's the air element that made that possible. And they went hand in hand. So, Cliff, I want to make sure we're giving. you know, especially your dad, his due diligence here, because this raid, it was just integral. And we're going to get into that and incredibly dangerous, too. I mean, going into the, the compounds, one thing, um, but but flying above Hanoi <laughs> in an orbiting pattern proves and we'll get into this um, as we move chronologically here, but uh, proves to be quite dangerous in its own right. So, Cliff, what was the selection process like? How, how did your dad um how did he get earmarked? How did he get on the roster to, to fly Lime 02 or, or fly in Lime 02? Mm-hmm. Uh, let, me, let me answer in two parts. First, let me mention that uh, it's an Air Force story. It's an Army story, but it's also a Navy story. Because mm. a big part of making it work was a diversionary raid mm. conducted by three aircraft carriers in the Gulf of Tonkin to draw all the surface to air missile focus mm-hmm. and the air defense toward the east mm-hmm. while the helicopters and the C-130s snuck in at ground level in the dark of the jungle from the west. Mm-hmm. And uh, that joint aspect of it, Army, Navy, and Air Force, uh, Marines were early on and there was some uh, coordination with the Marines. Um, uh, even uh Early on in the in the Pentagon, they considered could the SEALs do this, and it was just too big an operation for the SEALs. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of those joint assets at that time had no joint operations command, so mm-hmm. nothing like today. We have what's called the Special Operations Command, yep. the U.S. Special Operations Command. So when you hear me talk about the Air Force Special Operations Command, that's only supporting the U.S. Special Operations Command, uh, which is Army, Navy, Air Force. Um, And at that time, 
since there was no organization that could handle that, the only place to to draw all those in coordination was at the top of the pyramid. That's at the chairman of the Joint yes, Chiefs of Staff. Yes. So it was uh, Admiral Thomas Moorer uh, who was in direct control of the raid starting from July, early July, really just as he took um, his new role as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Now, to answer the second part of your question, which which is about my dad in particular, um, they had to make the, the planners, starting from when it was still only in the conceptual phase at the Pentagon, and at that time, the operation was known as Operation Polar Circle, mm. feasibility study, and it was General uh, Blackburn, who is also a special ops legend. Yeah. Uh, he was Chief Sog at one point, if I, if I remember correctly. He had been in at MACV SOG. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now in 1970, this is May of 1970, when the intelligence, the special, uh, the uh, reconnaissance aircraft like SR 71s and Buffalo Hunter drones imagery showed that there existed a POW camp with mm-hmm. Americans mm-hmm. and it was far enough outside of Hanoi that, that conceivably maybe there could be a raid done on it that, that had a chance of success. Yeah. Uh, General Blackburn. Um, pulled together a team that um, has, uh, okay, Operation Polar Circle. It is uh, looking at uh, whether to involve the MACV SOG, his old command. Mm -hmm. And the decision was made then that you can't allow a single word of it Mm -hmm. to get to MACV SOG, which might seem very strange because, you know, you're on the other side of the world. It's their theater. But the concern was, it was known that there was a mole yes. inside MACV SOG yes. and just could not risk this getting out. Mm-hmm. Secrecy and surprise were the only hope. And so uh, it, they made the decision that all the selection, uh, the only involvement, the assets and the training would all be done stateside and would literally only come in like a, a couple of days prior to the actual event. And of course, you're going to have to deconflict with anything that's going on in MACV, um, and so that includes, you know, the the Army and the Navy and the Air Force assets in theater. Um, where my dad comes in is that he actually was in theater. Mm. He was already in a 12 month tour at Cameron Bay, that's Cameron Air Base, and his. Uh, his job was, like I was saying, rescue C-130s. And their regular TDY, their temporary duty, was up in Thailand at Udorn Royal Thai Air Force Base. And it just so happened that that was where they were going to be launching the Sante raid from. And that was, you know, from the time it was in the Pentagon, just in the conceptual phase, they decided they were going to choose the big, the closest air base that could, they could launch from. And that was Udorn mm-hmm. in northern Thailand. And he was regularly there. And so when they said, we are going to draw the C-130s, the HC-130s from in-country and not bring them from America, um, he was you know, so experienced in it that uh, he, as the aircraft commander for one of the two that were chosen, um, the other one was uh, Captain Dick Frank, their two crews were just simply um, one week prior to the raid, brought into the secrecy, brought into it's, it's a secret CIA compound where they brought all the raiders and all the aircraft 
um, that one point where they were going to land for, for about a, a week prior to the Sante raid, that's Takli Royal Thai Air Force Base. And then their aircraft were going to be at Udorn, where my dad always was operating from anyway. So it was really only about one week prior because this was not too different from his regular, uh, regular job of going over Vietnam, uh, to support helicopters that were going in. Mm -hmm. Wow. So it sounds to me, um, well, first of all, the incredible bravery of, 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 of doing these kind of operations, gathering the flight hours, getting the experience, you know, um, absolute hats off to your father. Um, what, what an incredible individual it sounds like. Um, and uh, so, I, sure, sure, sure. It, it also is a little bit of a reflection of the um, impressive professionalism of the special operations community. Yeah. They're already primed and ready, and especially today with all the, uh, the um, lessons learned from the Sante raid and from other special ops uh, uh, events in, mm-hmm. in the past few decades, past five decades or so, or so, those guys are ready for this, you know, yeah. to be t- with something that requires some new thinking, some flexibility. I was just down at Hurlburt Air Force Base last week for a change of command ceremony for the wing commander there. Mm-hmm. And you see the aircraft that they deal, that they have, it's, you know, specially uh, outfitted aircraft. Like, I mean, I saw a what you'd normally see a, um, a FedEx delivery aircraft with pods <laughs> under the wing to fire hel- a Hellfire missile. What? <laughs> they get to do these oh, man. Uh, special um, one-off yeah. uh, uh, roles that really require that kind of flexibility and that um, readiness to do something outstanding like, like this Sante raid. Wow. Hats off to these hats off to the airmen, especially since, you know, um, just a week prior, Hey, we got something, you know? Um, and, and I don't know if the air force still allows nose art, but on that FedEx aircraft, you mentioned with the hellfire missiles, I I would paint special delivery. That's (laughs) what what I would put on the rocket pod special delivery. Um, (laughs) guys, these guys are, uh, in they're in the the role the world of delivering death i mean these guys know that their job is to be ready to make the other guy sacrifice his life for his country these uh, guys are going to whoop up and it's amazing what they can um innovate with their aircraft and their techniques i think it's the 160th soar is the special operations air air wing um pardon my if i'm getting it wrong but uh, Cliff, are you able to confirm if it's 160th uh, Special Operations Air Re- uh, Regiment? Is that what it's called? Well, I can say that um, where we were, it's the 492nd Special okay. Ops Wing yeah. and 1st Special Ops Wing and the 27th Special Ops Wing that all report to, gotcha. which is uh, reports basically to Duke Field and Hurlburt Field, which is yeah. where the, the Raiders like Terry trained and pulled all this together in total secrecy. But back in Vietnam, 
um, if I'm getting this correctly, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, this infrastructure was still in its infancy. It, it, it was, uh, you know, the U.S. SF command, um, you know, was in its infancy, if not, it hadn't even been created yet. It was had to go all the way to the top up into the political infrastructure of Washington um, and back again. So part of the legacy of these kinds of operations is the current ability and capability of our special forces, um, you know, command to be able to uh, have its own dedicated, highly trained, highly committed uh, support infrastructure, such as such as this, uh, uh, these air support structures that you're, you're talking about here. So part of the legacy of this raid, it's, you know, incarnate. You're, you were just seeing um, just the other day when you were down there. Yeah, they really do look at the Sante raid as uh, the beginning. Mm. The, the main message coming out of the Sante raid was we need to be ready to do these. And so we're going to need an organization. Yeah. And it eventually ends up, I think, 1987 is when the U.S. Special Operations Command gotcha. finally is authorized and stood up. Gotcha. In uh, the Bright Light podcast, I read um, excerpts of the book. Um, Bright Light by George uh, Vyeth, and he goes through chronologically the the Bright Light efforts. Um, you know, and Bright Light was codenamed for POW MIA rescue efforts um, in the Vietnam War. And uh, one of the most heartbreaking stories uh, that I shared in in that podcast was just this the asthmatic communications between Mac V Sog to their hierarchy. To from that bureaucracy to uh, the um, uh, the the political fellow in Laos, uh, the words escaping me. Excuse me. The uh, the political the appointed. Yes, yes. The ambassador in Laos, who then had to approve everything, oh, and then it had to come back, and then by then the POWs are gone. So uh, I'll tell you that a big it, learning it, curve. I don't. I don't mean to go too much on the um, the management of the war, but uh, LBJ chose to manage the war through the State Department. Sure. That means if the La- the ambassador to Laos vetoed it, he had a, yeah. he had veto power, and that just frustrated uh, Westmoreland, who had some real. Uh, he really requested that we cut the Ho Chi Minh Trail in August of sixty four. Mm-hmm. But it was vetoed, and I think all the misery, the the terrible sadness of '65 and beyond, is because they would not let Westmoreland cut that Ho Chi Minh Trail. Yeah. Sorry, I don't mean to go too much on that. I know that's no, off topic. No, it's okay. I appreciate it. I appreciate you um, going into that, Terry. The air airmen were given one week's notice. To, to, to run up and get ready for Sante. When did you start training? What did that process look like leading up to the raid? So you've been brought into the secret circle, so to speak. You've been selected. And you said you were part of an advanced element that went up. Um, where'd you guys go and what'd you guys start doing? Uh, the advanced element left Fort Bragg in the first few days of September. And uh, we went down to Eglin Air Force Base, Auxiliary Field Number 3, and 
our first job uh, was to, uh, at that time, we didn't know what we were doing, but uh, we were building the compound, the mock-up of the compound. And that was two befores, uh, post holes dug, two before stuck in the ground and wrapped in target cloth hmm. to look like uh, a wall or a door. Uh, so when we were training, uh, we were trying to emulate exactly what we'd be doing once we hit the ground. And we didn't know exactly what we were going to be doing or where we were going to do it or exactly how to do it at the time. So it was a learning curve of, you know, first we did what we call walkthroughs. We would just walk through the process of clearing a building or, or uh, getting off of a chopper. In this case, we just, they took us out in deuce and a half, and we just got out and walked through it. <clears throat> we did that for several, probably a month, and then we went from a walk to a kind of a run through. And then uh, later on, we brought in the choppers. So we were landing the choppers, uh, deciding how to exit the chopper, who would exit first, who would exit last, and uh, what choppers would be responsible for specific areas of the compound versus, you know, there was three elements, red wine, green leaf, and blue boy. And blue boy was the one that was to land inside the compound. And uh, that was a forced crash to, to get down quickly. Uh, in the training, uh, the people that did the train or the planning were very, very good at what they did. And one of the things we didn't know or they didn't know was if there was a rescue attempt made, what were the guards to do with the POWs? So they took the worst case scenario and figured that we had to control the guards inside the compound within a minute. Mm -hmm. So they would not execute POWs. So in order to do that, at that time, there was... Uh, two guard towers on each end of the, of the camp. And then there was one up by uh, one of the larger buildings, a two-story building. So on the way in, the choppers took out the two guard towers on the uh, one end of the building. And then as soon as the chopper landed inside the compound, uh, George Petrie's job was to go and ex eliminate any threat at that tower. And, uh, George's had a cousin who was a POW and he always said he wanted to be the first guy on the ground. Hmm. And when the chopper inside the compound hit, uh, there was a tree there, but the tree was larger than we expected. Mm -hmm. And it twisted the chopper around mm -hmm. in a uh, kind of like a buzzsaw going into it. Mm -hmm. And George was standing on the outside of, on the tail and was thrown out of the, the bird onto oh, the ground. Man. But he was the first guy on the ground. <laughs> yeah. so, so he did get his wish. And, At first, uh, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, and, and then Blue Boy did their job on the inside. And then, you know, we rehearsed over 170 times. Whoa. So everybody knew exactly what their mission was. And their, uh, each, each element had certain groups in that element. For instance... Uh, my part of the, I was an RTO radio operator for Redwine and Dan Turner and I were a two man team. 
And our job was to get to the communications building as quickly as we could, which was on the outside of the compound or, or of the camp. So we could eliminate, uh, reduce the fact that they could bring in reinforcements. And uh, that was uh, plan green. And plan green meant when we had, uh, if a chopper went down, we would go to an alternate plan. And the planner said, if we lost one chopper, we could still, the mission would continue. If we lost two choppers, we'd have to abort the mission. Well, just as we were touching down at Sante, uh, I heard on my radio, plan green, hmm. alternate plan green. Well, to myself and the rest of us in, in, in red wine, we didn't know if the chopper had been shot down or all we knew that it wasn't uh, available. And there was 26 guys on that out of the 56. So it kind of reduced our, our firepower considerably, mm. but uh, that we had trained for it. And uh, I tell you, you cannot overemphasize the, the value of training. Hmm. Uh, I look back at it and I, I say training probably saved our lives because we knew when, when we hit the ground and Plan Green was enacted for our part of the mission, we knew exactly what to do. There was no question about where we go or how we do it. We just did what we were trained to do. So something Terry, that, good time. Sorry, Andy. Oh, hey, uh, go for it. I was going to mention, since Terry brings up the, the value of training, the importance of training, mm -hmm. um, in the book, we have nine life lessons that Terry yes. shared. And one of those is the importance of training, even though you think that you're, you know, maybe bored with it, or you think it's beneath you. It's not just about you. That's a big part of the, of the that's a big message and theme in the book mm -hmm. that you're, you're part of something significant and you need to uh, train not just for your own benefit, your own excellence, but also for the benefit of those around you. Terry will, will, you know, tell, tells, tells in the book how he knew the job of the man to his left and the job of the man to his right. Mm -hmm. They could cover for each other and they could also deconflict to make sure that the, the, the fire zones don't, you know, put sure. somebody in way more. So, you know, any, any more than is planned. And so, so those nine life lessons, I think, uh, help to sort of bring home, uh, of course, Terry's perspective, but something that the reader can then share with others and give real life examples. Uh, we've got more of those. We can talk about those later, more of the life lessons. Sure. The, uh, the kind of implicit takeaway that, that I got from the life lessons embedded throughout the accounting in here, the personal accounting is that, quite frankly, the Sante Raid was a defining life experience uh, for you, Terry. And it taught you things. I mean, and it taught you things that, that not only were applicable in your military career, but were applicable moving forwards in, in your life. I, was I reading into that correctly? Or was I reading mm -hmm. too, too much between the lines, as I'm apt to do sometimes? No, it, it did. It did teach me uh, not to volunteer for anything. <laughs> but, well, that's uh, the next no, life lesson that we left out. There you go. <laughs> no, uh, you're exactly right. I mean, 
uh, I still believe that in, we need a draft today. Yeah. And, and not for that anyone should have to go to war. I don't wish that on anyone. But the experiences of building teams, the experience you know, getting value, understanding what this country is about. Uh, I think the military, uh, more back then than today, because today the military is getting a little squirrely with some of their uh, the leadership in our military. Today I have some real questions on. But uh, the values that I learned through just being with other warriors mm-hmm. and also realizing that you know, it's, it's not always about you, you know, you're doing things that are for the good of the country. And we were doing things for the good of our fellow warriors. Absolutely. And that was, that was most key to us, you know, uh, 50% of these guys had been POWs for over five years. I mean, uh, put yourself in their position. Mm. A lot of them had given up, thought that, you know, we'll, they'll never see home again and their families and the, the raid and going back to the success of the Sante raid, we may have not saved any POWs and brought them home, but we did give them that faith and that knowing that we were Americans coming after them just free them. Gotcha. And I remember at, at one of our reunions, I was, we were sitting at a table one day with some of the POWs and we were just sharing stories. And one of the guys said, well, you guys saved my life that night. And I turned to him. I said, well, how, how did that happen? He said, well, he says he'd been a POW a little over six years. And he says, I was just at the point where hmm. it's not worth it. But he says, and then you guys showed up and that made the raid worth every, every minute of all the training we did to know that, that was something that whether we brought them back or not, we give them faith in that they had people who cared about them and made the effort to come and get them. And if we went once, maybe they'll come again. So that was the attitude that some of the POWs that I spoke with had. So Terry, can, um, can I tell a little bit of that story uh, that the POWs tell in the book um, the POWs were near enough, their camps that they had been shuffled around. It was basically like a shell game mm-hmm. being moved so many times. Some POWs were in more than 12 or 15 POW camps just being moved from oh, place man. to place. So it was a cat and mouse. And yeah. it's not not worthy of, uh, of, of uh, armchair quarterbacking Monday morning generals about what the intel community should have done. You know, yeah. it's it was a near impossible task to keep real time accurate information. And we had never come up against something like this before. So this was real time learning in a war where, which in many ways was a first. And then we also, our special operations community uh, was, was really burgeoning and in its infancy, the green berets had been, had been just created by Kennedy uh, before the Vietnam war and you know saw massive development, massive uh, changes throughout the war. So it's really difficult to pass judgment, especially with when we enjoy the legacy that was sown by men like the Sante Raiders during the Vietnam War through trial and error. 
And, and the thing about my bright light podcast is uh, that when I was talking about is, you know, who are we to cast judgment? And even upon the ambassador that, you know, it's like he was a politician. He was mm-hmm. not a military leader. And he was right. put in a position where he was forced to make decisions that he was not qualified to make. And, 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 and unfortunately, military leaders were put in a political situation. It was such, there were so many, uh, there were so many variables. It's so nuanced. The job to look at now is to not pass judgment, but to learn, to respect, and to honor. So again, it's just, it's such a privilege to be here today. Before we get too much further, I really want to go, we've started talking about elements of it, but I really want to go through the raid itself. And, um, you know, it it was a nighttime raid. So Terry, if you're able, I would love for you to, to bring me and the audience with you back to that evening when it was time to go and what your experience was like going into Sante. Okay, let's start from the meeting we had at Takli before we boarded the choppers or the C-130 to Udorn. Uh, That afternoon, we were given uh, our lunch and a sleeping pill and told to go back and get a a rest and be at the little, uh, it was a theater, and be there by 1800 hours, six o'clock. We got there, and of course, we were all kind of buzzing, thinking, hey, it's getting to the hour. We're going to find something out here. Bull Simons and Colonel Sidner come on the stage, pulled out a big map of North Vietnam, had a Hanoi circled, and then uh, Sante circled. Bull Simons said, gentlemen, we're going to rescue tonight 60 to 70 POWs, and they're in a camp called Sante. 23 miles from Hanoi. And it was like dead silence for about five seconds. And then it was like the roof went off. Uh, Guys jumped up hollering, yelling, let's go get them. Let's do it. And uh, hugging one another. I mean, we were ready. Uh, Bull Convus down said, gentlemen, this is a strictly a volunteer mission. Uh, There's a high probability that 50% of us will not make it back. Anybody that wants to uh, uh, pack out right now is the time to do it. Nobody did. And he said, uh, go get your gear on. And we went over to the place where we were uh, at our chopper or where we stored all of our weapons and everything and got a radio. I got my radio on, did your checks, last minute checks on everything. And we boarded a C-130 and flew into Udorn. We got to Udorn. Uh, the choppers were already on the runway. We went to the choppers that we were told to go to. And that was Apple 1, Apple 2, and Apple 3. And then there was 4 and 5. And uh, uh, Blue Boy and Red Wine and Greenleaf were our, the different elements. We got in the birds and we took off. Now, there was no lights. There was no communications. Going back to the pilots, we had the best pilots in the Air Force. Mm -hmm. We flew in. uh, We looked like the C-130 was our mothership. Mm -hmm. 
and it was f- flying at five knots above stall speed. Oh, so the HH fifty <laughs> threes could keep up. Yeah, but the UH was uh, a little smaller bird, mm-hmm. so we had to make sure we could do that. And uh, we flew in above the treetops with no communications and no lights. Mm-hmm. Again, they refueled uh, in air with no lights and uh, no communications. It was amazing. To, I mean, wow. it, it was, you know, it, you could look like you could reach out and touch the trees. We oh, were flying man. that way above the uh, terrain. Uh, just as we were about to come into Sante, uh, the C-130 that we were following, our mothership, rose up and dropped flares. Uh, the, the idea was to drop flares over the compound which lit it up like a daylight. And as they dropped the flares, we were landing. Mm-hmm. And at that point, we got the word that we wanted to plan green. We went into plan green and did our the same things we had been trained to do. And the only difference was that we thought Greenleaf had been shot down, mm-hmm. or had, had mechanical problems. We later found uh, that Greenleaf came back and had been uh, there was another compound about 500 meters away the secondary school second yes the secondary school yeah and when that was uh done uh we took off and uh, we went into plan green which meant uh, about that time our minigun on the right side opened up mm-hmm. on one of, the, one of the guard houses where they were housed and uh we touched down on the ground and uh, did what we were trained to do. And as we were getting to the communications building, uh, uh, Captain Turner and myself, that's when I heard on there, no items. Now items was code word for POWs Mm. and uh, there was no POWs and they were blue boy was on the inside of the compound with a bullhorn. Dick Meadows was announcing to them to, stay down, get on the floor where Americans were here to free you. Mm-hmm. And uh, they went through all of the cells to make sure that nobody was hiding or, you know, that it was an empty camp from a standpoint of POWs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the guards were neutralized and uh, on the inside and outside. And then of course uh, the secondary school was believed to be uh, China uh, people from China that were training the NVA on the SAMs and on the anti-aircraft sites. And they so, got some uh, unexpected visitors yes. in the form of <laughs> Captain Dick Meadows. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. They, they, uh, they uh, uh, ruined their graduating class down there. A little bit. So, yeah. But, uh, and that's when we had the word to uh, come back uh, uh, to extract and uh, so the choppers had let us off, flew over to another location and sat down and waited for us to call them back in. Uh, they came back in. We loaded up on the choppers and uh, we did a head count because no man left behind. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were a man short. Hmm. So we did another head count. We're still a man short. The third head count we did uh, 
uh, Dan Turner counted himself and we were good to go. Ah. So, so we got on the bird, took off, and we were sitting on the tail of the H-53 with a, a PJ between us on oh. a minigun. And when we rose up, it was like looking over the lights of Hanoi. Mm. It was like looking at a major city in, you know, here in the United States. It was just amazing to me wow. how big it was. We thought things were going great. And about that time, our chopper dropped like it was going to crash. And uh, we looked out the tail of the chopper. and Big red pole flew by us. And uh, uh-huh. they were firing. There was a SAM missile site only about four miles from San Pei. Oh, my God. And um, they were firing. Uh, I think they said a total of 23 SAM missiles that night. And fortunately, we only lost one uh, bird. And that was, uh, uh, they, they got hit with a, uh, Sam mm-hmm. and, uh, but they were rescued the following morning mm-hmm. and, uh, by PJs coming in, uh, and those guys, you got to take your hat off for them. Mm-hmm. They, they are some fantastic Absolutely. individuals. Yes. So that was kind of the, 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 the ride in, you know, having never been in combat, uh, and uh <laughs> this was my first this was your first combat experience yeah. <laughs> look at you <laughs> so, and you know it's a three and a half hour flight longest flight i ever took and oh, uh man. but i you know i looked around and i saw guys that were either sleeping or praying or mm-hmm. you know just sat back and relaxed and uh, enjoying the, the flight but uh a lot of things go through your mind mm-hmm. you know 20 years old never been in combat and that fact that 50% of us may not come back kept kind of going through my mind. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, the good Lord was on our side and uh, took care of all of us. We had one guy, uh, Sergeant Murray got, uh, shot in the back of the leg. Mm. And, uh, that was our only actually air force guy. When the chopper crashed, fire extinguisher fell off and on it hit his ankle and broke it. Yeah. But other than that, we had no, uh, no uh, loss of life, and the success of Sante was we proved we owned that territory for the next 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And uh, if if we would have had anybody coming in for reinforcements, we had uh, four A1Es flying cover for us, mm-hmm. and above that, we had uh, uh, the Air Force uh, fighter pilots up there for the MiGs. So the planning of this mission was extraordinary. And there's only a couple of things when we were training, uh, the CIA made a mock-up of the compound from the pictures they had taken Mm. from the flyovers. And there was a little bitty bicycle they had made set out in front of the combo shed. And I was always curious if that was going to be there and sure shoot it was. Oh my gosh. Yeah, they did. But our, our LZ, uh, we took in a chainsaw to cut down the poles for the LZ when they come back in to get us. Unfortunately, the poles, instead of made of wood, they were made of concrete. Mm-hmm. So uh, chainsaws just don't do very well on concrete. Oh, so okay. we had, <laughs> had to move the LZ out a little further. But uh, other than that, we had pretty good intel on the whole process. Copy that. And so it was uh, the guy, uh, my hat's off to the planners. Two questions. Two questions. How long total from the moment? I think it was, I love the call signs. We have 
lime, cherry, apple, <laughs> banana, peach. Fruit we got a, the fruit salad of air yeah. assets from when uh, I think banana was the chopper carrying um, the Blue Boy assault group. Um, and uh, was that uh, um, the one that force landed in the compound? Yes. Blue okay. Boy. I misspoke yes. early. So it was actually Greenleaf under Bull Simons that mistook right. the secondary school outside of Sante, this compound, this training school outside of Conte, Sante. Correct. They mistook that as Sante and set down there initially. And that's what Correct. triggered the plan green um, yes. call that you heard. Okay. I, I, yep. all right, pardon me. I'm, I'm keeping no. all my fruit salad uh, in order here. <laughs> I have a bunch of notes over here because the call signs are just wonderful. And it reminds yeah. me of my... Uh, my time spent with tilt and he's talking about hmm. the judge and the executioner, the, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the judge and the executioner. Those yeah. are the call signs yeah. of the gunships that often supported him. And right. um, anyways, but uh, how, how long total from when banana force landed and, and the, and red wine, um, you know, spread out to, to give support and take out the external buildings. How long was the raid until you guys lifted off and took off? They, the planners estimated we could be on the ground no longer than 30 minutes. And we were on the ground about 27 minutes. Ooh. So, I mean, everything was pretty well accomplished and what we needed to do. Because, uh, you know, uh, being, we were only 23 miles from Hanoi. Yeah. And at that time, they estimated about 20,000 troops in that yes. area. Big hammer, so, big hammer you know, waiting. And our, our E&E plan, our escape and evasion plan, Bull Simons told us, was to back up to the bend in the, in the Sog River there and make it as bloody for them coming across that as possible. He wanted to keep us together as a unit, and we'd go down fighting. So I earmarked that passage in the book because uh, you guys are getting ready to go in, like you said, and Bull Simons reveals the map and says, we're going in to get POWs. And then, you know, he says, this is what we're doing. And then everybody goes crazy and says, calm down. <laughs> yeah. There's it was a crazy. big, big potential that nobody yeah. could be walking out of North Vietnam. And oh. uh, if it, if, if it goes South, if we've been compromised, then we're backing up to the river and we're making them pay for that open ground. Yep. I think that's just so hardcore. Yep. That is just yep. so hardcore. And then. Uh, Let me say that Bill, uh, Bull Simons had been there before. You know, okay. he had been in yep. um, the Philippines in World War II. Mm -hmm. One silver stars there. Um, he was going in not to take prisoners. Mm -hmm. he, he was going to accomplish his mission. And he was a. Uh, a noble killing machine. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he knew, and the men knew that when he said they'd make it a hell for anybody that came after them, yeah. he knew how to do it. Um, you, uh, uh, the men knew they'd, they'd want to be right there beside him yeah. because odds are he's going to come out alive. They're, they're going to succeed. Well, one of the interesting, uh, bits of trivia about the Sante raid. Mm. Uh, Pappy Kittleson mm -hmm. was uh, also on the Cabanatuan. He was the youngest man on Cabanatuan uh, POW raid in the Philippines. And he was the oldest 
non-com on Sante. Yeah. And uh, Pappy was just a great guy. And, uh, you know, this was his fourth POW raid, the only wow. American to be on four POW raids. But uh, great guy. Brave man. And, yep. Very wow. much. Cliff, we've gone through what the raid looked like on the ground. Are you able to walk us through what the raid looked like from all the air assets? Because this was a massive air commitment supporting these men who hit the ground. Um, yeah. What, what, and, and what was your dad doing specifically? Can you walk us through that air element of that 27 minutes with the, through the lens of your father's experience? Yeah. Um, from Tuckley, which is Tuckley Royal Air Thai, uh, Royal Thai Air Force Base, it's about a 30-minute flight uh, to Udorn. So the CIA compound there at Tuckley is where everybody stacked hands and, you know, sort of like a team coming out of the huddle. And they went to a few different um, bases, Nakan Panam, Royal Thai Air Force Base, Karat, um, uh, General Manor, the overall commander, uh, left there and went to Da Nang, where he was going to be commanding it from the uh, command post at Monkey Mountain, as it's known. But my dad uh, went from there with like the Green Berets, like the other, the helicopter crews and the MC-130, as well as HC-130 crews. Um, they leave Royal Takli uh, and go to Udorn. Uh, and it's kind of over Udorn is where either taking off from Udorn or some of the other assets converging at Udorn is where you're going to uh, head off to the northeast. Mm -hmm. And that all happens right about 11 p.m. And this is on the 20th of November, 1970. And the raid lands, the H hour is for 2.15 in the morning local. Um, and that's on November 21st. Uh, they actually uh, come over within three minutes of that. They, the uh, 2.18 is when the landing happens. Mm. And that is all timed on the various speeds of the aircraft. Mm. Yeah. A1E which is a four-seater, but only two pilots in it. And it is uh, assault. It is, I'm sorry, it is strike. It is hitting air interdiction, hitting the ground from the air, uh, white phosphorus rockets, strafing, 500-pounder uh, uh, bombs, uh, napalm, uh, some, not, not napalm like you think of in the jungle, but more sure. smaller, more targeted. And uh, then you got the F-4s that are leaving from, Udorn, the F-105s from Karat, that's the SAM killers, uh, the tankers uh, leaving from Karat, um, F, uh, oh, and then let me mention the, the Navy was uh, striking about 25 minutes prior to this. So that is all, the Navy's strike involves actually more aircraft than the, uh, than the Air Force. There are 59 Navy aircraft, Whoa. and they're going over Haiphong Harbor. Oh, wow. You know, drawing the attention to the east. Um, it was effective. Uh, the, the SAM commanders uh, in memoirs written afterwards that are now able to be read explain how they were totally taken by surprise, that that strike drew their attention there. They had no prior warning, and that the helicopters, when they landed, it was, there was no SAMs fired at them until about, uh, let's see, 235. 
So that gets you, you know, 20 minutes there. We're pretty much just departing, um, get, you know, rallying and going to reload the helicopters. So the air planning was very effective. Mm -hmm. My father's involvement was refueling and leading the helicopters from Udorn to the North uh, Vietnam airspace. They're the MC-130s, which have some special communications techniques, uh, navigation, um, some deception, electronic countermeasures. The MC-130s then take over the helicopters and lead them to the initial point, the IP. And at that point, you're um, at about uh, 1,000 AGL. Um, it's about 11 miles due east, I'm sorry, due west of the Sante POW camp. And from there, uh, everybody either climbs to their uh, altitude and uh, finds some separation. And it's uh, kind of the breakup point. Um, the MC-130 that went right over it is called Cherry 1. Um, that is at now at the front gate of uh, Cannon Air Force Base in New Mexico. My dad's aircraft, Lime 2 is also right there next to it at wow. Cannon Air Force space. Um, The Apple one, which is the one that uh, had green leaf and that ends up landing first at the secondary school. That one's now in the um, uh, United States. Let's see the The Smithsonian. uh, It's it's actually Dayton, Ohio, the Air Force. The Museum of the United States Air Force. Dayton, Ohio, Wright Patterson Air Force Base. And let me just put in a, a, a little plug for Greenleaf, you know, it'd be easy to say, oh, those guys, they screwed up, they landed at the wrong spot. But actually, they're in trail. They're about, oh, for, first of all, it's dark. The, the helicopters are dark. So you don't have any cues seeing the C-130 that's way ahead of you, the banana helicopter that's in front of you. And then there's an Apple II is behind Apple One. So what happens is banana is actually the one who is blown off course to the right and actually goes over the secondary school first, hovers and tries to see if they could land. And it was clear there's no place to land because remember, they were going to be landing inside the compound. There's no place like that in the secondary school. So they couldn't land. So banana peels off to the left. But at that point, Apple One, which is right behind them, about uh, a mile, half a mile behind them, didn't see. They'd already sort of fixated. They knew that they were going here, but they didn't see that banana leaves. And so they are now fixated on the ground that they see and they go ahead and land. And so, but Apple II did see, and they were back another mile and were able to, to divert. Wow. So I, I still have, uh, you know, the air force, uh, communications with the ground. We've, we've, uh, done transcripts of the actual audio from recorded audio from it. And it is the fog and friction of war seeing all the, the flashes, explosions from the white phosphorus. Uh, the flares overhead now are casting a, a, a strange light, an eerie light on everything, brightening up certain areas. And you can understand how the mistake could be made, even though sure. they had trained and tried to prepare not to be deceived by that similar looking uh, group of buildings. It was just the fog and friction of war. But, but Andy, one of the things that came mm-hmm. out of that mm-hmm. uh, uh, to this day, I still contend that what Greenleaf did probably saved the lives yeah. of Red Wine and Blue Boy, because you know there was a hundred, a couple hundred people over there at that compound, 
And had had Greenleaf not uh, interrupted their uh, their time, you know, we may have been uh, in that E and E situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think what they did, you know, we had the element of surprise, and that saved a bunch of bacon because these guys didn't know whether what to do or how to do it. Nobody ever dreamed that the United States would go that far north to save 60 or 70 guys. And it just shows you the type of and the caliber of the country that we are to go in and fight for our men who had been there too darn long. This leads, and, uh, this leads perfectly into something I want to share. Um, the, the experience of, of two POWs that you folks captured in this book. And I just want to say, as I have had the privilege and the honor to, to get to know more of the Vietnam special operations community, um, you know, the amount of effort that goes into recognizing others' experiences, the community as a whole, and, you know, um, um, Tilt's books, I mean, 75% of his books about other people's stories. He is devoted to telling the story of others. And you folks, it's really touching that, you know, I mean, Terry, you're, you're, you're only about maybe half of this book is your story. The rest of it are appendixes of, you know, other people's experiences, giving them a platform to share their experience. So one of the things in here I wanted to share, and I'm just going to read really quickly, is from uh, U.S. Air Force First Lieutenant Larry Lucky Chesley, Sante POW Camp, POW. And he was a POW from 66 to 73. He was in the Sante camp at, at one point, but he was not there when you guys came. But this is what his part that's included in your awesome book here is, quote, I was captured in 1966 and spent the next 2,495 days just short of seven years as a POW. I was at Sante. We had prayed for months that God would move us to a better camp. He did on July the 14th. I guess a person needs to be careful what he prays for. He might get it. (laughs) We loaded in the trucks and went to a better camp, which fulfilled our prayers. Then the raid came. We were blessed once more when we moved to a better camp in Hanoi, where we had big rooms, about 48 of us in a room. We could teach each other such things, languages, choir, movies. We told movies and had programs on each Sunday and also for Christmas, Easter, 4th of July, Marine Day, etc., When we got packages, and that was not very often, those who got packages shared them with those who received nothing. I never received any packages or letters for four years. Yes, for four years, my wife and family did not know if I was dead or alive. I am eternally grateful to the heroic things that the men of the Sante Raid did for our country and those incarcerated in Vietnam. So this was a man who was in Sante missed the raid because he was moved to, to a better camp, which makes me kind of wonder what the conditions would have been like in Sante for the men who were there. If there was such a thing as a better communist POW camp, Mm 
um, the horrors experienced by men incarcerated there, I'm sure. Um, and if you guys want to learn, the, if the audience wants to learn more, please buy this book. It is filled with incredible accounts, not just from uh, Terry, but from others. Another passage I wanted to read, which really speaks to the success of the Sante raid is as follows from U.S. Air Force First Lieutenant J.H. Spike Nasmith, who was a POW from 66 to 73. I was in Hanoi six and a half years. I spent time at the Hanoi Hilton, then five years plus at, quote, the zoo POW camp, then back to the Hilton. I was at the zoo the night of the raid. A rumble of bombs woke us. Then all hell broke loose. AAA, Sam's, everything they had started going off. Fighter planes roared by. We started figuring out what we were going to do if it was commandos coming to rescue us. Will the NVA guards try to kill us before the commandos get to us? We figured that if the commandos come, we've got a 50-50 chance of making it. We've been here for five years now. The 50-50 is better than the 100 chance, the 100% chance of being stuck here forever. We might as well be dead for then be a prisoner forever. The consensus was bring on the commandos, give us a 50-50 shot at making out at making out of here. No one wants a 100% chance of rotting in a communist jail forever. Thanks again for trying to get us out. Escaping or being rescued by guys like you was always one of my dreams while there. So with that, time is running short here with Mr. Terry Buckler and Mr. Cliff Westbrook. And um, I wanted to make sure we, we got those in there, um, not only because, because you folks wanted to make sure it was included, but it's just so powerful because there's, I, I honestly believe in my heart at the, at the very depths of my soul that as the more people learn about military history, the more people learn in this case about the Sante raid and, and in broader, the bright light POW rescue efforts of the Vietnam War, the contention of politics, the contention of ideology fade away. And what comes to light is the reality of the incredible heroism of men like the Sante Raiders who put their lives on the line to, to rescue men like the two USAF, uh, U.S. Air Force POWs, their statements that, that I just shared. Again, if you want to learn more, buy this book, Who Will Go Into the Sante POW Camp by Terry Buckler with Cliff Westbrook. Gentlemen, it, I know time's running short, um, and, and to respect you guys and respect your time, I could go forever. I, Terry, I want to know, I'm, I'm a, I, 
I love equipment. I love artifacts. I want to know all about the car 15s you guys carried. I want to know all about the equipment you carried. I want to know more about Bill Simons, more about Dick Meadows, more about Dan Turner. See, I could go forever, sir. But you know what? Time's coming to a close and uh, the door is always open to heroes on the Modern Military History podcast. Um, Cliff, I really want to hear more about your story, especially as a pilot yourself. Um, flying uh, B-1 bombers. That is incredible. Um, but time is running short and, and, and uh, it's, it, is imp- it is imperative for me to respect that. Gentlemen, um, any, closing, any closing words, anything you'd like to share before we tie it off? I would like to just thank you, Andy, for allowing us to share our story. And, uh, you know, our military... We have the greatest military in the world, bar none. And uh, all I can say is just keep supporting our military. They keep us free. And God love them. Copy that. God bless them. Copy that. Thank you. Yep. Cliff, do you have anything you'd like to add, sir? Yeah, you know, especially the Vietnam veterans, you know, we want, to show them, you know, there's plenty of things to be um, to to be sad about in the Vietnam War. The great thing about the Sante Raid is it is a heart lifting story. Yes. It's something that shares the heart of what all Vietnam veterans were trying to accomplish, were hoping for. And so it's just it, it ends up being a story to help you see that we can be proud of Vietnam veterans. And that, that um, needs to be told. And uh, certainly uh, we care about all veterans as oh, well. Yes. And just want to help them tell their stories and, and understand, uh, you know, what they're uh, going through and how there's, uh, there's encouragement and there's uh, appreciation for those for veterans. There's a, a sentiment that when I was, when I was going to university, I was giving a presentation because I've always loved military history and we were given the chance for, you know, for a class to write about, write a research paper about whatever we wanted. So, well, I'm writing a research paper about Mac V. Sog. I'm sorry. That's what's going to happen. So I'm giving my presentation to the class. And um, I remember kind of saying this spontaneously in the presentation. Um, I think it was an address to a question or comment but it's something that I will always say because it, it really encapsulates how I feel. It's okay to be anti-war. It is never okay to be anti-veteran. And those two are not mutually exclusive. Um, always respect the men who, who volunteered to put it on the line. Um, you know, regardless of, 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 of your feelings about the politics or, or what have you. It's okay to be anti-war, but it's never okay to be anti-veteran. They're individuals and, and they deserve our respect. Um, and and it's, it is just a privilege and an honor to, at any level, be able to spread this story. I'm going to cap us off here with the same verse for which we started this uh, with which we started this podcast. Greater love 
has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. This has been Andrew with the Modern Military History Podcast. Today we have had Terry Buckler, Sante Raider, Warrior. Um, just overall awesome, awesome individual. Cliff Westbrook, son of Sante Raider, also veteran, pilot, and uh, you know, in many ways the man uh, who helped make this book, Who Will Go Into the Sante Camp, a reality if you want to learn more, buy the book. The link is going to be in the description. Easy to find. Amazon, support your local bookstore if you like. Whatever you want to do. And continue to follow Modern Military History for more veteran interviews, more military history. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming and giving me your time today. I'm, I'm, thank I you. am honored. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. God bless you.